Welcome to New Freedom Church. Our mission is to be real people walking and experiencing real freedom. If you're new with us, please like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get new content immediately when it's released. And we want to thank those of you who have shared our videos because it helps us to reach even more people with the life-changing message that there is a Savior who loves you and wants real, genuine freedom for you. And if you haven't done so already, go to newfc.org. Go to the Connect tab and share with us how we can best connect with you and your family to serve your needs. I'm Joe. I serve as lead pastor here at New Freedom, and I'm so happy to have you with us this morning for part three of our series on Jonah. I was telling someone before service, this is a day that's going to be all about water. We started off with rain. We're going to talk about Jonah, and then today we have baptism after service. Uh, I have been amazed in the last uh, couple of months in my own personal reading and devotion times at how often that God speaks to people and brings a message to them in literal storms, storms out on the water, times where their, their lives are literally being tossed in a sea. But then that translates over into spiritual or figurative storms that I think all of us go through from time to time. And, and God many times will use a storm I believe, to get our attention, to kind of give us a wake-up call. And week one, we left you with Jonah being on the run from God. He had disobeyed the call of God. He had gone as far away as he could to an opposite town because he didn't want to discharge his duty of going to preach to Nineveh. In week two, we talked about how that he was swallowed up by a big fish. And I left you last week with Jonah being spit out on the shore from this fish. And we talked all about what it was like being in the belly of that fish. Well, Today, I want to talk to you about what happens when God gets you out of your mess. So God got Jonah out of his mess, but what happens when God gets us out of our mess? Where do we go then? Uh, but before we proceed into this part of the story, I must warn you that some of this is going to be a little hard to handle this morning. Uh, for those of us that have been raised with a religious mindset of rule-keeping, of following the letter of the law, of getting what you deserve, that, that religious conditioning that, that has been put upon us and we've been subjected to for many years, this part of the story is going to simply seem not fair. This part of the story is a little bit hard to handle because uh, this is the exact thing that got Jesus put on the cross in the first place. This is the exact thing that got him thrown out of the synagogue. This is the whole epitome of the gospel, what we're going to talk about this morning, that's so hard to, to receive, and that is one word named grace. It is the grace of God. And when God gives us grace, then we gladly want to receive it. But when God gives that person that we know have miserably failed, that they have messed up, when God gives them grace, then all of a sudden that grace seems a little bit scandalous. And so grace is really extended to the unworthy. And I don't know how many of you in this, this place this morning can be real humble and honest, but how many realize you're unworthy, I'm unworthy, we're all unworthy. So we all need this message. You see, humility accepts grace, but pride rejects it. And the thing that you will find really uh, easy to pick out in life is that ungrace, things that are not graceful, are ugly. We don't like them. We, we don't like attitudes or, or uh, environments where there is ungrace. And so let's get into it here. Jonah chapter 3. Read the first four verses. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message 
that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. He cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Here was his message. It was, you are about to encounter a great destruction. There is going to be a setback. There is going to be a failure. Your entire city is going to be overthrown. Now, I think that Jonah had a little bit of, of pleasure with this message because he didn't like the Ninevites. They were enemies of God. He didn't like these people anyway. And so he, he took a little bit of, of pleasure in telling them your impending doom is upon you. Destruction is heading your way. In 40 days, this entire city will be laid to waste. But I want to bring your attention back to verse 1 of chapter 3 because it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and I have it in blue there, a second time. Look at that word second, a second time. In the, in the Hebrew, if you go back to the original language and, and really try to break down this word, in the Hebrew, it is again or shene. To have a shene of God means that you have a do-over. You get a second chance. In golfing terms, how many golfers we have around here? In golfing terms, they call that a mulligan. You get a do-over. You get to take another shot at it. You get another opportunity. And I, I just want to uh, declare today that I am so thankful for a God of second chances. How many are thankful for a God of second chances, a, a do-over? You get another chance. You get to do it again. And there may be some in here that say, I'm thankful for a God of third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. I am thankful for a God that gives us another chance, another opportunity. So here's Jonah having been spit up out of the belly of a fish. He's laying on a, on a, a seashore and now he is given this new co uh, commandment, this, this new commission. It is actually the same word again, but it's to him a brand new opportunity. And I think that we, as we look at our lives, as we take an introspective look, as we take some inventory, there are seasons of life where we would really desire a do-over. And God has given Jonah a great do-over. Now, we truly like second chances when they're extended to us. We, we will seize upon them knowing that we're not worthy, knowing that we didn't earn them, we didn't merit a second chance. We like it when a second chance is given to us, but we get a little bit sideways. We get a little bit upset. It just kind of upsets our apple cart when someone else whom we don't like, whom we know is not worthy, whom we know the, the, the past story, we know the backstage of their life, when they get a second chance and when they start to be blessed as a result of that second chance, it starts to raise up in us a religious animosity. And Jonah is just about to experience one of the greatest crises of his entire life. And that is, what do you do when God starts blessing your enemy? How do you respond when you think that it's your turn, when you feel like it's your time, but God blesses someone else instead? Look at verse two, it says, arise and go to Nineveh. This is a, a exact same words that were used in chapter one in the first week we talked. That's where God told him to go, rise and go to Nineveh and preach to it the message that I tell you. It was the same call, go to Nineveh. It was the same message, the message I tell you to preach. And he got this again, this, this opportunity to do it all over again. Now here's what I wanna tell you about our God is he is steadfast, he is faithful. 
He is sure. He is true. God is not like man. He doesn't change his mind. If God called you at 15, you're still being called unto God today. You may not have uh, found out exactly what you were to discharge and to to function as in, in your life, but God is still calling people today. It is the same exact message. And here's what else he said. Preach to them the message that I tell you to preach. Now, here's what you and I like to do is we like to get a little bit of instruction and then add our two cents to it. We like to add a little jab in there. Well, we're giving advice. How many, how many know you're a much better advice giver than you are advice receiver? Hey, I, I, can, I don't do a whole lot of counseling, mainly because people don't take the counsel anyway, but I, that, that's not my trade, that's not my craft, but I'm really good at telling other people how they need to live their life. And then I'll get home and, and Holly will say, well, what'd you tell them to do? And I'll say, and I, this and this, and this is how they fix that. And she said, why don't you take your own advice? Hey, easy now. It's much easier to prescribe what someone should do than to actually follow through and do it. And when we find ourselves standing in a place of spiritual superiority, where we have the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge to, to teach and tell someone else, now here's Jonah. <laughs> He had a second chance. I've received the call of God. God spit me out of a fish. He, he provided the fish and God preserved Jonah's life for three days. He was spiritually feeling, I have been commissioned and called by God to do this. But these Ninevites, these sinners, these bad people over here, they just need to hear that in 40 days, they're going to be destroyed. And I think that Jonah probably blew into that city thinking, I'm going to deliver my heart. I'm going to give this message. I'm going to preach it hot and heavy. And I'm going to preach hellfire and brimstone. That's the message I'm going to I'm going to preach. He wanted to add his own little bent to the story. And God had other plans for Nineveh than what was in the heart of Jonah. You see, as a messenger of God, as a messenger for God, you are not permitted to speak on your own authority. I take standing up here week after week, very, very seriously, because the scriptures tell us that those who teach the word are going to stand in judgment for the words that they say. When you have an opportunity to speak the words of life, the words from God into the life of another person, not even from a stage, but maybe just relationally, you should take very seriously that call. And as a messenger from God, you are not permitted to speak on your own authority. Let God do the fixing. You see, he's called us to be fishers of men, not cleaners of fish. All you have to do is get them in the boat, and God takes care of the cleaning. Now, someone may not be progressing as far in the cleanup process as you would like them to, but be patient because God has a plan and God has a purpose, and he will work on them as he needs to. And here's the good news is that if you find yourself today not where you thought you would be, If you look at your life and you look back over the last few months, you look back over the last couple of years, and you're just not really sure that there's a contentment there that you are where you need to be, then this word is for you. You have a shine from God. You get a divine do-over today, a brand new chance, a second opportunity to do what God has called you to do. Now look uh, look at the scriptures here. It says in in verses five through nine, it goes in great length to tell us all of the things that 
that were being preached and, and all of the things that were, were taking place as a result of the message. That the king tore his robes and he went in sackcloth and ashes and he repented and called the entire city to do the same. That the nobles and the, the people in hierarchy and the people in authority were now in a place of repentance. And so, lo and behold, at the preaching of this angry prophet's message, this guy that, that got a second chance but was just ready to get out of town, now he is seeing a grand revival on his hands. Now he's not even realizing what to do with this. He doesn't even uh, have a, a precedent for this. God has broken out in a wonderful revival for the city. And you would think that a revival would be a good thing to a prophet, right? You would think that he would be glad to be partaking in this, that God has used him and these people are turning their hearts to him. And it says that they fasted and they prayed. Now, fasting is denying yourself of something that you really desire. In biblical terms, most of the time, fasting has to do with food, although you can fast other things. It doesn't have to be, be food, but in biblical terms, it's typically food. So if God calls you to fast, it may be food or it may be something else. Usually, it's something that is neither good or bad morally. It's just a thing. It's just food. You have to have substance. You have to have food. You can't do it with it forever, without it forever, but for a season and for a time. And so they fasted unto the Lord. I wonder, is God calling you to just give up a few things, to just put a pause on it, to just take a little break from it in order to focus on him. That's what fasting does, is it replaces our physical desire for food with a spiritual hunger for God. It causes us to look to the things of heaven instead of just the things of the earth. Now, I'm not talking about just putting a pause to moral sin or, or uh, morality issues. If there's a morality issue in your life, God never calls us to fast morality things. He always tells us to forsake sinful things and things of morality that are not according to his word. He doesn't call us to fast those, just put a break on them. But I'm talking about things that are neither bad nor good, just, just things that you may be distracted by. And here's what the king did in this story, is that he fasted and he prayed so that the people then would see his example and they would follow suit. Somebody is watching your life. Somebody is being influenced by your walk. You have a sphere of influence. And this passage speaks very clearly to how that others watch our lives and they will mimic or they will do the things which they see us doing as God calls us and walks with us through seasons of our life. And so as they were doing this, the entire land was in a massive revival. The kings and the nobles, it says, I believe it's verse seven, it says the kings and the nobles, and then even the common people. Now think of it, think of it like this. Think about that political party, and we're in a full political season right now. We are full-blown. You can't turn on the television without seeing campaign ads, but I want you to think about it. Think of that political party that you don't like, you know, the ones that are wrong. Think, think about those people. Think about your enemy. Think about the ones that don't have all their theology correct. Think about those people on the other side of the argument. This is the exact people that Jonah has preached to knowing that they are not going to hear his message and that impending doom is going to happen, destruction is going to come, and lo and behold, he is shocked when he sees that now they're turning in repentance. His enemies are now seeking God, and he's amazed. They're not only seeking God just from the words of their mouth, but they're in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes is the term of repentance. And so these people are in full-blown revival. 
Now, there is a cycle to revival that I want to share with you. Here, here it is. Judgment precedes revival, resulting in blessing. So I want you to see this. Judgment precedes revival, and then blessing follows revival. It's just, it's a cyclical thing. It, we can see it all through the scriptures. We've seen it in our nation and just the, the, the almost you know, 270 some years or however long we've been, we've been a nation. We've seen it many times in our nation. And I want to share with you from the word of God, because I think that revival is really near and dear to the heart of people right now. What God is doing in our land is no coincidence. It's not by chance that you and I were born in this season of time for such a time as this. In the Exodus, which is the great epic of the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was marching towards the birth of Jesus and what he was going to do to bring us out and deliver us from sin. But in the Exodus, we see this same cycle. There was a judgment in Egypt and they had plagues and they had pronouncements of things that were happening in the land. There were blood in the waters, there were the frogs, the locusts. You, you can go back and you can read all of the judgments, the, the plagues, the 10 plagues that were uh, upon Egypt until finally Pharaoh relented and let God's people go. So in the crossing of the Red Sea, which is again this great epic of deliverance, and it speaks of how that when Jesus has brought us out of the Egypt of our lives, the sin of our lives, we have this great crossing over through the Red Sea. It actually has a symbolism of baptism in it because when you and I are baptized, we go under the water, we die with him, but when we come out of the water, we live his life, the resurrected life. And so through that, that water of the Red Sea crossing over was a time of revival. It was it was a time of spiritual renewal. The people of God had been suffering for so long, oppressed by the sins of Egypt and by the oppression of their taskmasters for so long. Now they were finally free to pursue the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, it was a place of blessing. It was a place of abundance. They had more than they could ever imagine. It was the place they had always dreamed of. So in the Exodus, we see this cycle, judgment in Egypt, Revival through the Exodus, coming into through the Red Sea, blessing in the, the brand new promised land. In, in the whole picture in life of Jesus, we can see the same thing. Jesus' judgment, God poured out the judgment of all sin for all time upon Jesus, where? At the cross. And so the resurrection of Jesus was this grand revival that new life has begun. The new creation has been inaugurated and we're waiting now for the consummation, for the end of that at Jesus appearing, but it's not yet, but there is this great revival. But then at Pentecost, which is 50 days after Easter where Jesus raised from the dead, at Pentecost, there was a great blessing. What was that blessing? We were having the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So we received our blessing. Again, you get judgment, you have revival, and you have blessing. I, I want to fast forward to the Reformation. When the, the, the sins and the indulgences of the Catholic Church had grown to a fever pitch, about 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, which were 95 points in a, a, oppressions that he found from the Catholic Church. He was a, a monk, a priest himself. He was part of the established Catholic Church at the time. It got him thrown out of the church because he said these things cannot exist and a great judgment came upon the church of Jesus. There was a judgment for the, the things that the clergy and the, the uh, uh, religious elite were doing to oppress the people. 
As a uh, response, there was a great revival and the word of God was starting to be translated in many different languages so that common people could hear the word of God. And that was a great, great blessing. So we see again, judgment upon the church, the revival of people getting into the word themselves and, and understanding they can shake off this stuff and the blessing of having the ability to actually possess the word of God. Up to that point, nobody had ever held a word of God like this. They were in big scrolls and they were in Latin and they were in Greek and Hebrew and people couldn't read them in their common language. But after the Reformation, we started receiving the blessing of the word of God for ourselves. I'm talking about revival. So we can look and we can see how all of these things have taken place. But then in the 18th century, in the 1700s in this country, we have what is known as the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening actually had multiple waves to it. The first wave was from 1730 to 1740, preaching from men like Jonathan Edwards, who wrote the, the great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It got the attention of people. This was a word and a message of judgment that was impending upon a land, or George Whitfield. And from there, we see that the, uh, the Western world started having a great uh, turning back to God. Americans and African-Americans especially started to embrace Christianity for the first time. Many of these slaves started to embrace Christianity for the very first time and come in mass numbers. The second wave of this great awakening was 1970s to the 1850s. Now the Northwest and the Midwest of America was re receiving uh, this, this message and there was this great um, revival that was happening. Many people were coming uh, to the church for the first time. But sadly, that portion of the revival ended right up to the Civil War in segregation of churches. So black people no longer felt like they could worship in white churches, and so they started their own churches, which in and of itself is totally fine, except that what it did is it further divided believers from one another. It said, you're going to have a black church over here and a white church over there. And as America started to get more integrated, you have Hispanic church and Latino church and all of these different um, segments or segregations of the church. And of course, the Civil War uh, was, was a great judgment upon our nation for the sin of slavery. And from that came abolition, which was a good thing, and women's rights, which is a good thing. But then they went into the temperance movement for a period of time, trying to ban something on the outside, trying to make people give something up for the, the cause of revival. And you can never legislate yourself into revival. You can never uh, pass enough rules and enough law keeping to make people want to do the right thing. Then the third wave came in the 1850s and 1900s, and we saw this great social gospel that was going around our nation. It resulted in things like the YMCA being created, the wonderful Azusa Street Revival, where we saw an amazing outpouring again of the Holy Spirit, and people uh, started to experience spiritual gifts in a way they had never experienced before. Preaching like, uh, from men like D.L. Moody, that, that had a powerful, thundering message. And then the fourth wave was from the 1960s to the 1970s. This is a little bit closer to, to our common time as far as uh, many of us can remember the Jesus people, the Jesus movement. Remember that? Uh, people just like, like the hippies were coming to Jesus. And there was a, such a great revival amongst the young people. Unfortunately, the mainstream churches started to decline, but independent churches started to grow and conservatives uh, started to grow. 
And a result of that revival was that there was great political power that began being given to the church. Now, in and of itself, that political power may look like a good thing, but I'm here to tell you it's not. It's not all it's cracked up to be. Because in 300 AD, when Constantine became a Christian in the Roman Empire, he made Christianity legal. Up to that time, the church was persecuted for 300 years. They were underground, not literally under the earth, but they, they had to meet secretly. If there was to be a gathering, then it was to be in small numbers. And the persecution of the church in the first 300 years of Christianity fanned the flame of revival for 300 years. But then finally, Constantine, the Roman emperor, decided, I want to be popular, so I'm going to sanction Christianity as the official religion. We're going to put churches in every town. But can I tell you what that did is it made the church lazy. It institutionalized the church, and it, take, it took this, this fan of revival, these embers that were all over the land, and it consolidated them into one place, and the church got complacent, and they started to lean upon the whims of government. And in the 1970s and the 1980s in this country, very much the same has happened with giving the church political clout that looks good on the surface. We get our voices heard. We get some legislation through. But then all of a sudden, we feel so insulated that government is here for our sake because we voted in the people that believe just like us. But what happens when the people that don't believe like us start to make legislation? We're seeing that right now, aren't we? We're, we're wondering, well, where does the church fit in all of this? What happens when those that we used to influence were no longer able to influence at a, at a great scale? Well, we need revival. Now, I don't know. If I will see revival like I'm thinking of revival in my lifetime in America. And the reason I say that is because I have stood at the graveside of very many people who believed that the grand last great awakening, the revival was going to happen in their day. And yet they didn't get to see it. So I don't know if I'm going to get to see it. But I do know one thing that revival is coming to America. Revival is already starting to percolate in America. And here's what the church needs to do. We need to stop trying to recreate the last move of God and start opening up our hearts to receive whatever the next move of God because I believe we are right at the precipice of a great revival, a great awakening to hit this nation, but we have a mindset of what it should look like, what it should feel like. And it may not look or feel like that. It may not be like the old revival meetings with big tents that, that we saw in D.L. Moody's day and, and Billy Graham's day. God bless them. Thank God for their revival. Thank God for that. But what if God wants to do a new thing? What if God wants to do something entirely different? I do know that God is going to use digital to do this in a very big scale. Just look at, at what's happening with, with public gatherings. Look at what's happening in the psyche and the mind of people. Oh, should I go outside? Is it safe to go outside? Can I be around people? I don't know if I can be around people, but I want to tell you what, if you have a digital device, you can't catch anything from that. And so it's vitally important that the church of Jesus in this day wake up to the fact that God wants to do a brand new thing. God wants to do revival like we have never seen it before. As I was thinking about this, the 21st century, the century we now live in, began September the 11th, 2001, with a worldwide judgment of terrorism. Nobody was exempt. Every nation felt the fear of terrorism. And then in 2008, we had the economic financial crisis and meltdown and it was a worldwide recession. 
And now today, we find ourselves in 2020, just 20 years in to the 21st century, and we are facing a worldwide pandemic of a virus that has touched every nation, every people group on this planet. I believe that the judgment of these things are marching us to the next step in the cycle because judgment always precedes revival and then is followed by a blessing. I believe that we are marching right to the next cycle, which is revival. And there has to be repentance if there is to be revival. Titus 2 and 11 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching them that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. How are we to live right now? Titus told us, in this present age, we are to live righteously, soberly, and godly because someone is watching our walk, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are looking for, we are longing for, We've talked about revival. We know that there's going to be a great uh, in-gathering of souls in the, the, the last day, the, the time before Jesus appears. And so if we're looking for that appearing, if we're looking and we're longing for this, then we should also be longing for revival. But then comes the last part, the blessing. Jonah 3.10, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So follow me here. The people repented, and God relented. When people repent, that means revival has started in their hearts and soul. Jonah had no clue that this was going to happen. He, in fact, thought that Nineveh was going to be destroyed. He was going to go, he was going to preach, and then he was going to get out of town because impending judgment was coming upon that land. And lo and behold, because the people repented, God withheld his hand and didn't do what he said he would do because they repented. And this was the blessing that Nineveh got to enjoy. Now it was short-lived. They didn't stay in that place of blessing. They fell again. But isn't that just like us? That we come to God for a season and a time, we repent, we receive a blessing. But so often we lose that blessing because we go another way. But today, if you're here, you're watching us online and need a second chance, if you need a do-over, we serve a God of second chances. If you haven't had a, a season of blessing in your life for a while, if all you feel like you've been going through is judgment, then the good news is revival is here today and God's blessing is waiting for you. We're gonna sing this song and I, I want you to, to make an altar where you are. You, you can feel free to stand, you can sit, you can come to these altars, but I want you to make an altar somewhere. I want you to take the words of these songs, soak them in, let them run over you, your heart and soul, and see what God has for us as we turn to Him in revival. 
Thank you for joining us today. I just can't wait for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. Thank you for sharing on social media, and please subscribe. And if this message has impacted you in any way, would you just write a rating or review for us so we can reach even more people with this message? Your generosity really does make a difference. So to give, please go to newfc.org and click on the giving tab or click on the link in the video description. We love you. We'll see you real soon.